Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I am joined by Justin Singer, who is the sous chef, executive sous chef at Chapman's Eat Market here in Columbus, Ohio. He's kind of next in line to potentially be the executive chef there um, once they open their new restaurant in the short north, which uh, BJ talked about a little bit when he was back on this podcast, uh, Huawei, which uh, it sounds like potentially Wesley Grubbs would move over from Chapman's to there and run the kitchen there. And then Justin would kind of move up and, but that's all kind of in the works and a little presumptuous since they haven't actually started construction on the other restaurant anyways. That would kind of be the the line and the idea, uh, essentially. We kind of touch on that towards the end of the episode, but another great episode, we get to talk to Justin about how, you know, he got started cooking, you know, working in different parts of the country that he did, you know, how he wound up over in DC and, and working there, how he wound up here in Columbus, the ice cream program at Chapman's, which is kind of, you know, he runs that, how he kind of develops new flavors and different challenges with that. And we touch on a few things that we haven't talked about. The big one, I think, is kind of when you're working in a competitive kitchen, he kind of touches on different experiences that he's had with people stealing your prep or throwing away your prep and stuff. And it's stuff that you see in The Bear, which uh, if you've watched as a show on Hulu, it's like eight episodes. It's just basically this character comes back to Chicago and takes over his brother's restaurant. And it's really informative, really eye-opening kind of different uh, pitfalls of the restaurant industry and working um, in kitchens and different things that you'd encounter and everything. So, but yeah, Justin kind of touches on all that stuff. And it's just nice to hear kind of an outside perspective about the Columbus restaurant scene and what he's experienced so far since he's been here. And and future endeavors and things that he wants to do in the future too as well. So you can follow him on Instagram at RedRacerX uh, is his Instagram handle. Uh, you can also follow the restaurant at Eat Chapman's and then follow their other location, Ginger Rabbit. And then they'll eventually have a separate Instagram for the new restaurant when it opens. But uh, you can follow us on Instagram too as well at SpoonMob, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. We're on all those, but mainly use the Instagram uh, check out the website, spoonmob.com. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. Episodes come out on Thursdays and then hit YouTube a week later. So you can subscribe to YouTube if you want, if that's your preferred listening platform. But we're on all the major podcast apps and a whole bunch of the smaller ones. So you'll find us pretty much anywhere. Just search SpoonMob on there and then hit the follow, subscribe button. That way all new episodes drop into your feed as soon as they come out. So appreciate everybody so far for listening. We're back uh, in full swing. Took a, a little time off there to just kind of reset and doing some other things. So more episodes on the way and everything. But here is my conversation with Chef Justin Singer of Chapman's Heat Market here in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Uh, we're pretty familiar with your work. Uh, we were early adopters at uh, Chapman's when you guys first opened and started originally to go and then started doing dining and everything. And you've been there since you guys opened um, too. So you're one of the originals. But, you know, I want to get into, you know, how you wound up in, in Columbus and everything. But I always like to start at the beginning of everybody's career. How did you first kind of get started cooking? I don't know. I was one of those weird, like, quintessential kids that, uh, kind of grew up doing it. My uh, mom was super into baking and whatnot. And I had a very like early childhood cooking. I had one of those like, like plastic play sets. It was a kitchen set, not like the standard tool set or whatever. It was, it had like all these weird little like uh, saute pans and like, it was a whole little kitchen island that completely made of plastic and fell apart half the time. But it was like my little go-to. I think I was probably like five or so. 
it was brilliant though. They had like a like canvas taco shells and like you could put different like uh lettuce and stuff in them it was wild i remember you could put water in the saute pan and through some weird reaction it would like sizzle and like it was just water but it would like act like it was cooking it was it was wild super early battery for me that's where it like all started for me really i don't know like the whole nine to five thing was kind of like always a plan b for me you know i wanted i wanted to get cooking really early on i think i was maybe 15 and a half when i uh was able to work for the first time and like joined a pizza kitchen that was uh in the shopping center down the street from my house and like it was my best friend who hired me at the time yeah i was flipping pizzas at like 15 and a half with 30 year old dudes and like this crazy pizza kitchen in virginia beach where i grew up and uh yeah i always grew up uh in the kitchens i did in high school all through college when i was home yeah it's it's always it's always been a part of my life and somehow i knew i just kind of i went to standard four-year college and got an english degree that I never ended up using because, you know, I just always, I always kind of knew that uh, this was going to be my life. And I, I love it. I really do enjoy it. I feel like, you know, for our generation or so, one of the first, I mean, there's a bunch of kids in high school, like their first job was pizza place. And you basically could either be inside making pizzas or you're a pizza delivery driver. So did you have the option to choose between the two or did you already know, like, you didn't want to do the delivery thing? Like when I took that job, I was trying to pay for a car because I like Fast and the Furious had just come out. I was like wild in the cars at the time. I was like, you know, my parents were like toying around with like maybe get like helping me get a car. But they were like, well, you really got to like, you know, get a job. <laughs> I was like, what is the job thing? Anyways, uh, yeah, so I just did it to like start to get money. And I like already kind of knew the people that were there. Yeah, I ended up uh, just tossing pizzas in the back making pizzas that was kind of like my my start into the culinary industry uh as crappy as it was yeah i can still toss pizza like i'll get a pizza dough going every once in a while and i'll i can still toss pizza the the fun thing that i still carry and hold over from that job is that i can uh take a ladle of like sauce or whatever and just perfect circle every time and usually Across the board, you can tell who in the back of the house has worked kind of like in that pizza kitchen vibe because they can get a perfect circle with a ladle of sauce and nothing else. Just because that's a part of the skill set of the early on part of the job that's kind of like, oh, you worked at a pizza kitchen. I see you. Like, it's, it's, it's fun. I, I still think back to those days. It's called Chicho's. I think it's still down there in some way, shape or form in Virginia Beach. But uh, yeah, it was a cool place. It was wild. Is it true that the most expensive part of a pizza operation like that, at least ingredient wise, is the cheese? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're just going through volumes of it. It was the only pizza place that I like really that I worked at. Um, but there's this big like kind of grate, and you would you had all your toppings in front of you in kind of like a roll top situation. You would just kind of move the pizza down and take the the toppings for whatever was required and you end up wasting like a god awful amount like 70% of the product ends up on this like falling through to the cutting board below this grate that you're working on and it 80% of it was cheese. <laughs> so, yeah, I got to imagine cheese is the biggest overhead cost there at a pizza shop. So you wind up going to I think Longwood University like get a bachelor's in English like you said. What was your intended career path? What were you thinking at that time? I was like, and this carries through to, to cooking too. Like, I really like teaching uh, people and like kind of sharing information. So the the backup backup plan was uh, was always teaching English. And like, I 
I got to, to Longwood and was like dabbling whether or not I wanted to like full send on it. And technical writing came up as kind of like a, like an offshoot of that English degree. And like I, I dabbled in that and kind of always saw it as like a, a backup just because the whole East Coast there, Virginia Beach, where I grew up, Norfolk, Richmond, all the way up into DC, obviously is a very heavy uh, military community. So like the possibility for me, like maybe segueing into some kind of like technical writing offshoot from that was was always in the back of my mind. But man, did I not want to do that. Uh, I'm glad I didn't because I'd probably be miserable and I obviously wouldn't be talking to you. But yeah, plan B situation for me. We still probably would have been actually having a conversation. It just would have been a different conversation about your technical writing skills. Uh, <laughs> it's just probably what would have been happening just because I spent some time on the other side of that in the military community. Oh, yeah. What did you do? Basically working for government contractors, like hiring folks who have, you know, technical writing, security clearances, stuff like that. So very familiar with that whole area and that that whole process. So you never went to culinary school, right? I did not school hard knocks. I think maybe in my in my like mid twenties, I probably was like wavering a little bit. I mean, it came up in conversations with I always tried to bring it up early on with my mentors when I really started getting seriously into the uh, into the industry is that like, Hey, like, am I behind the eight ball for not going to culinary school? And like, I already had like fairly decent chops. I mean, I got probably wrote a little bit harder than the other kids who had kind of, you know, that pedigree. And at a certain point, you just kind of have to push past and it kind of made me work a little bit harder. A lot of my mentors said, don't waste the money, you know, save the money, invest in yourself or, you know, later on down the road when you want to like open a restaurant, if that's your, you know, end goal or like, you know, just kind of like bolster yourself around learning and traveling and tasting and eating food, because that's just as important as if not more than the textbook side of things. And that's the, the, the unfortunate part is like CIA is great. And like going to an organized school, if you have no, like, if you have zero, like knowledge of working in the restaurant industry and you just kind of like on a whim, like that's, oh, like I want to try this. Like, yes, that's a great like route to take, uh, especially if traditional four-year college isn't for you. Like, you know, it makes sense. You know, it's, it's a fast-paced life. It's definitely a, a vocation. But uh, I had all those licks and most of that knowledge from working in kitchens, you know, since I was 15 and, you know, getting out of four-year college, you're already in your early 20s. And like, yeah, I definitely asked my early mentor, like, hey, should I go back? And like go to culinary school and they're like, just work and learn. We'll teach you everything you have, like you need to know. So that was, that was definitely reassuring. It comes up every once in a while that like, you know, I might not know some obscure technical French term, but you know, that's what the internet's for. And you know, the, the plethora of YouTube videos out there that can like help anybody along for that matter are invaluable in that resource. And you know, is it worth the extra? God, I don't even know what it costs nowadays. Probably high double figures for that one, high four figures. I know what my regular college costs and that, like I can't imagine going for a culinary degree and then going to work the line. <laughs> and like most of the kids I saw coming out of culinary school that I was working beside, uh, you know, when I was in my early 20s was just kind of like, you know, they have a lot of book smart, but they don't have a lot of organizational skills or, you know, kind of like, I just felt a little more built than them that they would fall apart as soon as, you know, the burners went on and you know, the printer started going off and tickets start coming in and orders start getting called. Like they took, they definitely took a little bit longer to like get used to being in a kitchen fresh out of culinary school. 
know, you hear the disaster stories of them, you know, a lot of, a lot of culinary kids right out of, right out of school are just like, I'm chef and blah, 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 blah. And like, you haven't, you haven't really earned it yet. You know, that was a big part of like my early career was like earning it. And I think that comes from not going to culinary school a little bit, but also just like seeing everyone around you kind of fall apart on the line who went to culinary school. It's just like, man, did I dodge a really expensive bullet? <laughs> like, like I feel just fine working the line while everybody else is like kind of crashing and burning around me. And then I get to be the nice guy who bails everybody out. And like, yeah, that was part of the teaching aspect too. Is that like, hey, like you might not have learned this in culinary school, but I got you. Like I would always like freedom of information for me. It was always kind of nice. It's just like the little nuances that you build not in culinary school to work in the kitchen and work a line and move through your day quicker and efficiently was definitely something that I felt like I had that the culinary kids didn't always. So there are pluses and minuses for sure. With the teaching aspect, because you've mentioned it a couple times now, is it depending on like what style of kitchen or what the kitchen environment is, how open somebody might be to teaching? A lot of people that we've spoken with, everybody's kind of got a mentor and somebody that kind of showed them the ropes. But, you know, some kitchens too, especially in, I got to imagine like the DC area, it's pretty competitive when you get on the line. And so it's, I've read stories of, you know, different Michelin restaurants where like they purposely didn't have enough, you know, utensils in the kitchen. So they're creating this like combative atmosphere of like, you got to get in early if you want one of the three whisks that are in the drawer when there's seven people that need them kind of thing. You know, in your experience, I mean, did you ever encounter anything like that where it was like, yeah, like teaching people, but I know if I show this guy too much, like there's a chance that, you know, he takes your spot. To answer the first part of your question, like the, like uh, utensil situation, I've had friends who worked in restaurants like that and I luckily, I feel like I'm in the realm of the age group where like people started moving away from that. And like, you can only work like as a business. That's just a dumb move. And for the most part, uh, kitchens were kind of relying on the cooks and chefs to like bring their own stuff. So I always had a huge kit of stuff that I would pull from based on like what I knew was coming up or like what the menu was and just tried to like optimize from kind of like my, my quiver of uh, restaurant utensils or kitchen utensils. And so I wouldn't have to deal with that if it became a problem. And that, that was like part of kind of like early identification of like who went to culinary school and like who was kind of like a line dog. Is that like if you knew when you needed a utensil, you could kind of like plan your day out around it if it was like like one of those situations where we didn't have enough. Rarely did I come across that. And I think that's a generational thing, so to speak, uh, which is nice. And I feel really fortunate for the The cutthroat part of the industry that I tended to experience early on was people stealing and hiding your prep and uh, trashing your prep that you worked on maybe five minutes ago that you knew you had. And then like suddenly it was gone and on somebody else's station. Like those were the underhanded moves that I came across for like getting ahead. Those people weeded themselves out. Luckily, I think it's again, coming down to a generational thing is that like it was mostly older, like line dog type people that were trying to get away with that. But that was definitely more prevalent than the uh, scarcity of utensil situation. It's not like people just straight up ganking your your prep that you worked on. And we're like, nah, this is mine. <laughs> it's like you, you're just like, well, fuck me, I guess. <laughs> like uh, that was that was super common up until. 
probably five years in my career one of i finally started to like like hey like this is bullshit we, like you those people weeded themselves out thankfully but like it was a uh, early part of my career that was a that was a big part of it the underhandedness of like low-key prepping more than you needed and like keeping it on the station below you and then putting it putting like a decoy of like say like say you needed like say you needed a court all day i would prep a court and a half and put some of it in a pint and put it in the common spot and then hide the rest and like suddenly it would disappear that pint but i would have my court in the back back of the low boy hanging out and just be like oh like look what i have <laughs> like trying to like get the one up on you so it was kind of a an interesting early part of my career i will not mention the restaurant that those are at but i don't think that it, i hope that doesn't exist anymore with them that was definitely a, a part of it uh was the stealing of your prep and it just going missing or finding it in the trash can uh that was less common the trash can situation it was mostly like this is mine now <laughs> no that, that's about as competitive as it got uh really and fortunately enough it's you have a terrible service and like you get in the weeds one too many times and you start to see how that affects the whole and really that all that kind of behavior and that uh that aspect makes people not want to work with you it's a stressful industry to to compete in and if one leg of the line is using all the utensils or hoarding the utensils or snatch and prep like that's people get kind of like set out on a uh, iceberg by themselves real quickly and left to fend on their own if uh you know you're not helping other people i don't necessarily know if that was just my experience but yeah i i quickly try to involve everyone else at least in an aspect of like can we get through a service sanely <laughs> and like help each other out and not have to deal with like somebody like claiming this is their prep when it's not you know so that that was kind of an early part of realizing that I could bring people together and like, hey, maybe like sous chefing or taking it to the next like management level was like in my future was was that and as crappy as all those situations were and definitely made me a little bit better of a cook for it. I think I hope it's definitely cutthroat. So after you graduate, you wind up working at Bar Savita at some point and, and a couple of places after that. But was that right after college or was there stuff that happened in between? Man, what did I do? So I was in Virginia Beach Post College. And was kind of like dabbling whether or not to move up to Northern Virginia, which is where most of my, oh, like 90% of my college friends were. You know, I was just like, Virginia Beach is great, but nothing was really like popping off down there. And, you know, it's, it kind of feels like they're maybe, and I tell this to my parents all the time. So like, they're probably a good, like five to 10 years behind kind of like the, re like the rest of the country, like average, you know, things that like are cool here aren't existent or cool in dc are non-existent like virginia beach so i had to like kind of got out of there and recognize that and uh was gonna like dabble on like trying to get into using my technical writing degree like i said and like i got up there and started working for um this restaurant group uh they were called the liberty group and i did lion hall it's called lion hall and it was a uh kind of like a french brasserie very cool very hip spot uh, a lot of good mentors there uh, the sous chef that I worked under at the time, uh, he's really great, was a mentor. And uh, the head chef of that restaurant, his boss uh, was named Liam Lasavita. And uh, I worked for him for, you know, better part of almost two years. And he uh, left there and went to open his own spot, Bar Savita uh, in DC. It was in, uh, over by, oh, DuPont Circle. So it was like a pretty cool happening spot. 
and uh, this, he asked me to sue for him there. And I was kind of like popping back and forth between a bunch of different line cook jobs at the time. And it was like the first proposal that I got to be a sous chef. And I had zero clue of what I was doing. Uh, sous chef wise, absolutely zero. I had no like financial background. I had no like, you know, real like, you know, uh, management skills at all. And it was just like, he took a chance on me. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was rough. Like we had to gut the whole restaurant. I remember uh, there, there was a beer walk-in that was ginormous, but the food walk-in, walk-ins were maybe the size of a coat closet and you couldn't stand up in them. You had to kind of like, open the door, stoop in and like grab what you needed and like back your way out. I remember having to gut those and cement the bottom of them to open this restaurant. Like uh, it was, it, I mean, it was way, way worse setting up than, um, than Chapman's. Cause we, I mean, we gutted Chapman's essentially. There was, there's no floor <laughs> in the kitchen when I got to Chapman's. So it was, it was like a, bad in different respects for sure. Cause I had to do a lot of like manual labor to set this up. I had no idea what I was getting into. Yeah. It was a, it was a wild, like I worked a, a year for him and it was just every single day. It was super hard. I mean, I was in the kitchen at maybe six, seven o'clock in the morning and roll, we would do bread service. Uh, we had bread service donuts um, on the weekends, like just wild stuff all over the place. It was, it was interesting. It was definitely a crucible to like for uh managing your prep day yeah i worked for him for about a year and then got called back uh into the fold at uh think food group for jose and i couldn't pass it up and uh yeah liam uh liam gave me a good opportunity and uh they they hired me back into the fold at think food group after that and i was like full send sous chef so it's my first sous chef gig with bar Savita. when you have different programs like that in a, a restaurant like a bread program Assuming, you know, a lot of times you would like to just have a baker, but not a lot of restaurants can have just a separate bakery department. So how much does that take away from your time for other aspects? Is it like just, hey, today it's your turn to do the bread stuff and, you know, we're all doing this and you just kind of rotate through it? Or does somebody just kind of take that on and like, all right, this is going to suck, but like I got to eat it. Like, how does that work? It depends on how how well you're you set yourself up like relatively well staffed at like Chapman's to do something like that to where if I needed to like peel off and do a, like a separate project, you know, bread or a fermentation or something that requires like a little bit of extra time to kind of like, you know, get going. It re is really how well your staff, like at Bar Savita, when I was doing bread and donuts and like all this other stuff, um, saw we did, we had a sausage program. It was insane. That was all on me. <laughs> it was me and two other cooks all day and then two um prep cooks in the morning the annas we called them it was anna and anna and they did pasta by hand like hundreds of the pasta maybe every other day and we would kind of like switch so you kind of have to build your prep schedule around who's available and i would get in there with them and the day that i would do bread they would do pasta and then we would flip uh so that it wasn't kind of like a repetitive thing they enjoyed the pasta situation more than I did. So sometimes they would take that, that away from me and just like go out and like, like literally handmade orchiette, pushing all the, their thumbs into all of these pastas. And it was absolutely insane how much they did. Um, but it's just how you manage your day, really. 
very few restaurants, I feel like nowadays, have the capabilities or the financial backing just to, you know, hey, we have a bread program and we hired a baker and that's all they do. Or like, you know, we hired, you know, you know, even even to the sense of like a standalone pastry uh, department, that's like few and far between. You just, uh, the industry is hard and we unfortunately have to kind of be a jack of all trades at, at everything. So, you know, the kind of how the, sort of the ice cream program started off is that like, okay, do we have the bandwidth to do this? And like, just kind of like fell into it and you can just kind of have to be absorbent and roll with the punches. So it depends. It's definitely what your, what your staff looks like and what your financial backing is. It's So at the time, were you working like multiple different line cook jobs? Like, cause you mentioned you returned to think food group and were a sous chef. So before that, were you working at like three different restaurants as like a line cook? Not like, I don't want to say part-time, but probably like part-time. There was a fair stint. I was working a lunch shift that was called Liberty Tavern. And I was getting there at like, again, like seven, eight o'clock in the morning, setting up for lunch, banging out lunch. And then I would walk uh, back to Lion Hall and work the dinner service until 11, 12 o'clock at night and shut down the restaurant and get out of there at like one. Yeah. I mean, that's just, it sucks. I mean, it's definitely a lifestyle. Restaurant industry doesn't pay that well and it's getting a little bit better. We're trying to like, you know, move things a little bit forward with paying people a fair wage at Chapman's at least. And it's definitely why I want to like, be a part of that is uh, a big part of our ethos is trying to like push the needle forward in a more positive direction. But yeah, there were days where I was on my feet for 18 hours and was walking between restaurants and doing multiple shifts. Yeah. It's, it's what you got to do to get by. It, it's also, it's way more common than people think like, yeah. Argument for fair wages nowadays. Now like people can't keep that up. Like that's not sustainable. Multiple like line cook jobs, I guess is what you would call it. But yeah, just multiple jobs in general. Those are my pre sous chef days. <laughs> I don't know if I could do that right now. I would fall apart. I think the general perception on that, you know, is people understand, you know, servers, front of house, you see multiple people at different restaurants and you'd be like, oh, I recognize that person. Oh yeah, they worked over here. But I don't think people are understanding more now. I don't think people realize that, yeah, when first starting out in the industry that you might have two, three different places listed on like your resume and that's because you were working two, three different jobs at the same time. Yeah, it's the same time. <laughs> yeah, that, that resume filled up real quick. You were working at Think Food Group beforehand. Then you become a sous chef at Bar Savita. You wind up going back to Think Food Group, joining the kitchen at Haleo, right? So how did that all happen? So I was a line cook for Think Food Group, got the sous position for Bar Savita, and then I got pulled back into Think Food Group as a sous chef, uh, which was nice. And then I did uh, my first sous job for them was America Eats. It was this like a uh, really crazy concept of... Uh, historically sourced American dishes. It was wild. I mean, obviously Jose is huge, but he was working with like the, I believe the Folgers library and was looking at like Mary Washington's uh, like family cookbook and all kinds of like historically sourced, like where, where, where there's some like just ridiculous things. Like where did the, uh, where did the Buffalo wing originate? Just like peeling back the, going back their history, which is definitely a low key, like, like favorite like memory of mine is just kind of like moving back through these, all these kind of like historical documents that they would give us and just kind of like figure out where things came from. Like, just like I said, weird, obvious things that you think are like, like Buffalo, New York, who actually came up with that, you know, and just like the most mundane things and uh, the anthropological aspect of 
cooking was a, a big part of of that. I obviously I one of the nicest kitchens I ever worked in. Huge French line, like triple line. There you could see through and uh, pass through your 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 stuff from one saute station to the other. Big giant marble pass. Uh, beautiful kitchen. We did uh, Sean Brock's like. Uh, and this is kind of like one of the weird full circle stories with BJ and Wes and I. Is that like Sean Brock's first book? They kicked off the book tour there. And we did this whole like Sean Brock service, took my uh, roommate's GoPro at the time and I stuck it on top of uh, the line and filmed the whole service and Sean Brock coming through and like signing everybody's book and meeting everybody. It was really cool. I, I still hold on to that. That was kind of like my first test gig because it really was just a, uh, it was just a Jose project that he wanted to do. I think it originally started with the Smithsonian it was just like kind of like a gig pop-up that turned into a restaurant. And they were trying to like make it into a full, a full concept, but it never really like, it never really made it. People never really got it, which was unfortunate because like historically sourced American is kind of neat, be it a sorted past, which is probably a good thing in, in retrospect with uh, how things are going nowadays. But it was a cool concept at the time, but it kind of like jumped me into the rest of his uh, operations. Is that like, I kind of, you know, did halfway decent there. I had really good mentors there. And uh, got pulled into the the Haleo concepts. Yeah, that was my ad, like my real like modern sous chefing gigs were all with the uh, Haleos and working with that whole group of people, which was amazing. So then I read at one point BJ tried to get you to join Little Pearl, and I believe it was to be his replacement. Was what I read. How it all played out so weird. Yeah, I I had met BJ and Bronwyn through a significant other at the time. And like, I was like, Hey man, like I was trying at the time I was feeling like I was cr like a little bit creatively stifled just cause you know, like it was a big brand. Man. Like it's corporate. And I was feeling a little like stifled and I've always been a very creative person and wanted to really like express myself and take my, uh, take it to the next level. Roses was the hot restaurant at the time. And really kind of like, at least on a, for me fit kind of like where I wanted to be and who I wanted to be working with. And like I said, I met BJ and Brown went through. Uh, significant other ad at the time and asked me if he wanted to get coffee and like if I could like pick his brain. Yeah, we sat down to coffee and I was like, you know, what's it what's it gonna take to get over there? Like he's like, well, like, you know, I'm kind of on my way out. Like if you want to stage a few times and you know, test the waters. I was like, yeah, like I jumped at that opportunity and it was fun anyways. Like stage around and hang out with meet new people because that's like at least for me half the fun of staging is that like I feel like I can walk into a room and meet new people and have fun and connect with people. And yeah, I went over there and did a few, uh, few stages at Roses. I did one at uh, Little Pearl. I got a call from BJ and he was like, well, like, you know, you can come over and work or whatever. I think they wanted to give me a sous position at uh, Little Pearl and then kind of like envelop me in. And he was like, but... I have this other project because I'm leaving soon and moving to Columbus. And I was like, oh, I have connections here. <laughs> like, I have family here. Like, I was like, what are you going to do in Columbus? He's like, oh, I'm going to obviously went through the whole chat and like spiel. Yeah, that's how I got pulled into the fold here is that like I, I had at the time been in D, working in DC for the better part of almost five, six years, I think. Weird to, weird to think about that. But yeah, five, six years and I just, it has just kind of run its course. And not that DC is ever going to be, it's always going to be an awesome city. Like there's always going to be something there to do, but I don't know. So like part of my, part of my drive nowadays is that like, I feel like the move of these like huge cities of like D 
DC and New York and Chicago and LA, San Francisco, like they're always going to be cool. But with this whole advent of social media and Instagram and like, you know, people in the middle parts of the country are going to want to start to be doing cool shit too. And like, that's a, uh, to me, it should be part of like a movement to bring up the Midwest and bring up all those states that are generally figured as like flyover states. Like there's cool stuff going on here too. And like, there's cool people and creative people here. Yeah, I wanted to be a part of that instead of grinding away in a city that's always going to be wonderful and that I can always go back to, but like be a part of something new. So yeah, that's where I, it's kind of the whole origin story of Chad's, I guess. Had you ever been to Columbus, Ohio before that? Did you visit here before accepting? Like, how did that work? I have family here. Uh, I had been to Columbus before for like, I think my cousin's wedding, maybe in 2017, randomly enough. Not randomly that I get to the wedding, just like randomly it was here. My dad's side of the family homes from just a little tiny, tiny town in the middle of Ohio. So I, I have connections to Ohio itself, but not necessarily to Columbus. But it like, it kind of made off, offshoot sense. Like my cousins live here and like, you know, I'm never one to shy away from a brand new experience. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, I went for it. And here we are. <laughs> Were there any additional challenges with moving here kind of during the pandemic or right before? Yeah, it was, I mean, like I bought, I got my apartment sight unseen. I was living in DC trying to set up a living situation here and like having to like Zoom call like realtors here and be like, hey, like, you know, can you, you know, FaceTime me so I can at least look at the apartment and like just the Love Columbus quality realtors here that were renting now apartments, not the best. You know, they were all like, you know, older, had zero idea how to use FaceTime, Zoom, anything. And like the disasters that I like of like setting up these Zoom meetings to like look at these apartments to try to move to someplace that I had no concept of really. Like where are the good places to live? Where where should you stay away from? Oh my God. Like I had this one, I took this one Zoom meeting from this realtor who couldn't figure out how to flip the flip the view of the phone around from the selfie view to the like front view to show me the apartment. So the entire time she's giving me a selfie tour of her face and like snippets of this apartment. And it's just ended up just being set up over it and bought, didn't buy, rented this place over on uh, Parsons. And I ended up being like the first person to live in it. I moved into, I moved up all my stuff and was like one of maybe five cars in this giant apartment complex that was brand new. Yeah. I lucked out. I had no idea what I was getting into. I looking back on it, I still can't believe it, but I got lucky. I could have ended up in a real bad place. No, it was all good uh, to do it during a pandemic. Absolutely wild. I was past my U-Haul keys through a mailbox in downtown DC with no exchange of credit card information, driver's license or anything. It was just in a mailbox. And I went and opened a U-Haul and put all my stuff in it and drove it to Ohio and dropped it off. <laughs> the pandemic was a weird time. Not that it's not going, it's still going on. Like It's still a thing. But the height of the pandemic is when I moved here and it was... <laughs> intense. So you've been in Columbus for probably what would be like two years or so? Two years and change. Thoughts so far? Any any standout highlights? Any things you wish the city had but doesn't? Oh man. I mean I stand by that. Like uh, Columbus is on the up and up. The potential here to do neat stuff and be kind of a shining city, not necessarily of like the Midwest, but just kind of like generally recognized as a culinary like town meeting up and doing the the pop-up at uh, the locks 
and how freaking good those bagels are and how good a job Kevin and Sias do. And like, I don't know, just kind of the little tidbits here and there of like glimmers of hope, you know, like Dome Mama is great. I love going there. Pistachio Vera, like, you know, their bakery program is absolutely insane. Yeah. Some of our coffees like really on the up and up, like there's room for improvement, but like, you know, people genuinely want to experience like the fun side of the culinary industry and go out and spend money. And like, I don't know, just the things that those are things that I've been delightfully surprised by come into this thinking that that would be a thing. I mean, like Veritas, Rue, all these random like gems of restaurants are like shocking to me for the Midwest, but like I had a feeling they were here. They just haven't gotten their due on like a national stage yet, which is kind of what we want to drive towards. So how did you get started with the ice cream program at Chapman's? What's the origins there? Because I remember when BJ was first on this podcast, like he kind of started it and then just kind of passed it off to you guys. Was that how it happened or more to it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. If you want the short version, yeah. Like he had and has, I mean, an amazing recipe, amazing base vanilla recipe that is absolutely delicious. The vanilla where we're actually like salting the ice cream, whereas most lean real just full send on sugar um, was like eye-opening to me. And it was really cool. Yeah, we just take that kind of like base ratio and just extrapolate from there. I, it was just, I just happened to kind of like fall into being creative with the ice cream. I mean, I would do a different donut every weekend at that Bar Sabita restaurant that we were talking about. I had worked with ice cream a little bit before with Haleo because there was like definitely a culinary or a creative freedom there. And I could just kind of like send whatever or make whatever I wanted. So that was kind of nice. And I had already dabbled a little bit. So like I knew what I was getting into ice cream wise. Yeah, it was really just having a great base recipe from BJ and taking that and seeing where I could go with it. And luckily he's laissez-faire enough. He was willing to, to give that to me and let me kind of express myself that way. I still love it. It's it's so fun. Instant gratification almost. You know, you, you know that the ice cream is going to be good or bad before you even put it into the ice cream machine. You know, that definitely fits probably what undiagnosed ADHD I have. Uh, but yeah, it's like pretty simple. You just came up with a really good recipe and I just happened to absorb it like a sponge and kick it off to what it is. Like it's been a lot of fun. The process for making ice cream, like it seems fairly simple, but then you see people try and do it on like, you know, Top Chef. There's always somebody I feel like every season who tries to do it and like it just doesn't come out right for whatever reason. So it seems simple on the surface, but I feel like also there's a lot of places that make ice cream, but it's either not very flavorful or what is that? What's the reason why you can have bad ice cream essentially? I would really put it at kind of like just a poor understanding and a like, really not being hypercritical of what ice cream can be, should be, has the potential to be. Because you can be really like, if you mess up your milk ratio, things end up too watery. For like the sorbets, if your sugar content is just a little too high or a little too low, which we've dialed in and figured out that if you're within a 25 to 28 brick sugar content, like it spins perfectly. But if you're below or above, things go crazy wrong and you're left with fruit juice or fruit simple syrup, you know, basically just not being as hypercritical as you could. You know, I got a lot of like restaurants and it's like a little bit watery and you can taste that they're like not including like heavy cream or like offsetting with fat or have their fat content like dialed in correctly. Eggs kind of are obviously, there's only really 
honestly, we're only talking three really important parts being milk, eggs, and heavy cream. You could throw sugar in the mix, but you can kind of like play around with like the sugar content of things. We don't do any like, uh, like at Haleo, I had uh, a sorbet chemical. I think it was carrageenan that uh, helped it set. So I wouldn't have to check the brick. Stuff like that, like trying to get away from using, they're not harsh chemicals, but they're still kind of cheating, feels like, uh, to set ice cream and emulsify it correctly and to get it to essentially scoop so you can get it to the table and it's not a melty ice cream soup mess. There are ways around things, but yeah, to me, the importance of managing your fat content seems to be the biggest play with restaurant ice cream or like independent ice cream that's not mass produced like Jenny's or whatever. Yeah, to me, it seems to be the biggest ploy there is like focus on the fat content and hopefully things will come out correctly. But yeah, we've learned a lot. I mean, there's definitely way more technique than meets the eye for sure. Is it hard to come up with new flavors that like nobody else has done before? Everybody's got vanilla, like all that's obvious, but you guys do some pretty unique concepts, unique flavors that you don't really find anywhere else. Is that part of the the challenge or is that just part of just basic inspiration? I think like really like that's like basic inspiration and having fun conversations with other, other people in the restaurant, you know, uh, I do some of the PDR that are kind of like offshoots of just like, we'll be like, hey, like, can you do a honey ice cream? Or Bert, our uh, AGM was like messing around with, he's a big Mezcal fan. And we're like, oh, watermelon Mezcal. And like, just kind of like things up end up creating themselves organically. We're trying to kind of, I'm trying to kind of push into the realm of the like ice cream trio. If you've been the Chapman's, we do the three scoops of them working cohesively and kind of trying to push the program forward that way and uh, having like a theme around them instead of just kind of like this crazy concept like each individual ice cream is fun on its own but making them work together is definitely kind of a a neat box to work in creatively i like i'm not so great with and i've come to discover this about myself is that like uh and it's a kind of like a good method in my mind is that like uh having the world as your oyster to just like really create whatever more difficult than having a box to work within so setting that theme and having like discussions with people at the restaurant and cooks in general is just like, Hey, how can we work in this box? And like, what can we come up that this theme uh, encapsulates? Like the most recent one is the uh, kind of the, the tea themed one. We were just, it just happened that like the prep cooks and I were talking about uh, uh, one of the prep cooks and I were talking about Thai iced tea. Ben, the, uh, the junior Sue, we were talking about sweet tea and freedom a la carte talking about doing having us do an ice cream for them. And I was like, oh, like, you know, I try to go for like lighter flavors for them. So it's like, Jasmine is cool. It's also tea and like, bam, you have a, like a theme. Uh, the cooking from nostalgia one from that to me is definitely a ploy is that like, I love cooking from a nostalgia t- standpoint and trying to like get people to like zap back into the, have that ratatouille moment, you know, where like the, the critic like snaps back into his childhood. The last I, ones we did, just like trying to hit those like Flintstones push pop tasting ice cream and like dipping your fries in the frosty one. Like, yeah, they just kind of like invent themselves. And we're, we're all constantly talking about food in the back. And I mean, it's a long day. Prep cooks get in there at 8 p.m. Crew doesn't leave until 12. And all the time in between that we have to like talk about food definitely stems really creative, like a, a really creative environment. So most of it comes from just spitballing with other people and like having fun conversations about what they like and what reminds them of childhood or what they're into now. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's definitely not just me. We have 
a whole staff that wants to invent ice creams. I'm just the one who tends to get it thrown on their plate. <laughs> What's the most like out there flavor that you've kind of come up with created so far that you were also at the same time, like unsure how it was going to be received? Oh yeah. That one's like, that one's a softball toss, man. That I was really trying to do something for, for 420 just cause it like, it's kind of a fringe topic. You know, if you know what it is, you know what it is, but also as like a, an ex, like an experiment and trying to like push flavor profiles, we were trying to come up with spitball, something that was uh tongue in cheek, but not like Ben and Jerry's fish food. Like ice cream where it's just like, oh, like I'm really stoned, like throw a bunch of stuff in like an ice cream and call it a 420 ice cream. We reached out to uh, Morris Farms who grow hops locally because hops turn out they're in the same family as uh, cannabis and have similar like where you get like, I guess, like tarping flavors. You're getting bitterness and tarping flavors in hops uh, and that flavors beer and trying to like experiment in that realm of how to balance extreme sweet and extreme bitterness huge challenge didn't really know how it was received and really in priming like front of the house to sell it was like i get it this is not for everybody but this is us trying to like really push like the boundaries of the taste of bitter and the taste of you know like like super sweet honey is what we ended up balancing it with and just trying to like you know challenge yourself that way has been was one of the toughest ones to work with and like it sold really well but it was like i was not sure <laughs> what people were going to like expect out of it because it was it's out there uh it is to this day the most out there ice cream i think i've ever created <laughs> like, it was tough but fun i want to keep doing stuff like that we should keep doing stuff like that when the new york times article drops and you first start to see and hear all the reaction from it what were your first thoughts i definitely want i'm one to want accolades and recognition not just for myself but for like the restaurant in general like it's important to running a business if we're recognized i mean obviously our instantly our books were fucking stupid filled up completely had to start doing the like month release at a time it was absolutely ridiculous it definitely contextualized how important it is for like recognition to just kind of like for the drive of business but also like you know it's nice to be recognized and like at least eyes are on us for not just pushing our own restaurant but random new restaurant in Columbus, Ohio got posted on most anticipated for New York Times. Like, let's do something with that collectively. German village part of town is definitely up and coming. Like we got some great restaurants going in around us. Like, yeah, I, I really just hope we get to continue to roll that momentum as a restaurant, but also use it for the city as well to kind of like bring things up and should be awesome. I hope it's awesome. I hope we can continue that. Like it's the goal. So you're kind of the snack guy in the kitchen Every once in a while, you'll post uh, different random snacks that you find. What are you looking for when you're browsing? Are you looking for a crazy new flavor? Are you looking for something you've never seen before? What's your methodology on that? Oh, I treat that like almost as like, a, how can I how can I garner the most reaction? What snacks garner the most reaction out of people? And like, I don't know. I think it's like super fun to, and it's also a conversation starter. Like the the AM shift is notoriously tough because you're just kind of like prepping the same stuff over and over and over and it's it's volume like you get in like come into the kitchen at 10 11 o'clock in the morning and it's like bumping because we're pushing out some food and uh it's got to get prepped at some time and like having like just something random and shocking and different and new 
uh, be it flavor profile, country of origin, or just something generally out there that like, you know, you get to stop and like taste with other people and see what they're, what they're thinking, what their takes on it are, be disappointed in them or, oh, well, this is cool. Like, yeah, it's definitely all for shock value. Uh, Buying snacks for shock value is definitely, I, I would highly recommend. Yeah, I imagine you spend a lot of time at uh, either like Cam or like Cigar or whatever, finding like a decent amount of that stuff. I remember my wife when she had to pass through like Tokyo from like a work trip and like she came back with all these different Kit Kat flavors. And you don't know, like unless you go overseas and stuff like that, you don't realize like all these big name brands have these whole other lines that are dedicated to these other markets that you never see in America. Countries all have their own like flavor profiles in terms of like what's cool for like sweet stuff like you know the stuff that we take for granted for in the checkout aisle of the grocery section is just a snapshot of what other people eat for snacks and like sugar in other countries and like yeah i'm glad that i'm 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 really quite shocked and surprised that we have such a great international market situation here i mean there's you name it it's here you just have to find it but being exposed to that and exposing other people to that is to me so much fun and gives me so much joy is that like what are other people like doing in the world and then how can we expose us here to that yeah i think that's absolutely awesome and i'm glad we have that i always like to do this with uh, different alumni you know when we have different people from the same restaurant come on so give me your best bj lieberman story and you can go whatever direction you want to go with that oh man best bj lieberman story I got to put that one back to, uh, hmm, that's BJ Lehrman's story. I mean, the pop-up uh, at the locks, just like, it's not necessarily like a, a funny moment, but it is like you get a real snapshot for who he was, was the, the pop-up that we did and the, the context that the time period of the time period that it was all going on. And like, like the, the pandemic was kind of at, at our doorstep and it had this weird, like ominous feel and vibe. I had rented an Airbnb to stay up here for it. And we ended up using it to prep some of the, a lot of the food. Cause like the locks is small, like there's not a lot of space to prep. And we were doing full, a full sentation menu. And I remember being in this tiny Airbnb kitchen with BJ and Wes and prepping and just like having this like wild, like not out of body experience, but very like humbling, like, Hey man, like, are we going to open a restaurant? <laughs> like, <laughs> and, uh, and like we all just kind of like didn't look at each other we just continued probably like yeah i think we're gonna open a restaurant <laughs> and like from there was like that was him saying that and just kind of bringing it all to like i don't know a real this is a real standpoint we're gonna like we're gonna do this during a possible pandemic because like we hadn't shut down yet i think i was bad i had i flew back and maybe a week later everything shut down and like yeah, true testament to uh, to kind of his character, and is like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna open a restaurant. Like he's a fire from the hip guy in the best in the best sense, and like to me that encapsulated him as that like we're gonna open a restaurant <laughs> during the pandemic. Oh man, don't regret that bit at all. That was uh, that was such a wonderful wonderful time in in our lives. Give me your best Wesley Grubb story. I mean, his best story. He's a good, he doesn't realize how good of a storyteller he is. And I don't think he gets enough credit for it. His best story that he's told me is his 21st birthday story, which I'm not going to tell because 
that's his to do. But if you catch him at a bar or whatever over a drink, maybe, maybe he'll tell it to you. Uh, but his 21st birthday story is fucking insane. It's so good. They should make a they should make a movie out of it. We did the pop up and finished the pop up. It, it all sends back to the pop up because it was a great time. Uh, we did the pop up. It was two days and we got done with the second day. Obviously went out for for drinks. I I had little concept of where we were because I was so new to the city, but I'm pretty sure we ended up at uh, I think Seth, the beverage director, uh, t- took us to Little Palace downtown with the promise of like getting food or something we were all absolutely hammered and we were waiting on our oh no we were there was like a taco or mexican spot right next door and like wes was really wes having the mexican uh culinary background uh really like piqued his interest wanted to go there we sat down like their staff is like one two people so they were obviously struggling a little bit and like seth knows everybody he's like the unofficial mayor of freaking columbus so he goes back there and is like trying to talk up the bartender and see if he needs help and like we're inebriated at this point so he's trying to help out this bartender he disappears bj disappears wes is definitely by far like you know he's had a few drinks he disappears completely bj comes back from the bathroom he's like did we lose wes i was like oh uh, i don't know i thought he was with you he's like no i thought he was with you and like back and forth obviously an hour goes by we get our food we eat pam and wes's significant other and the the saint that she is has no he's fine like she, she knows him. He's fine. We get totally done with our meal, our drinks. Like we've had several more shots and are like, where, where's Wes? He's still not back. Should we be alarmed? And <laughs> I get this garbled text from him that he's, it's just like all of the characters and then pizza. <laughs> and <laughs> Seth, I was like, Seth, is there any place that there's like pizza around here? He's like, oh yeah, next, next, next door is like a little palace. They like do pizza. And I was like, okay. So we stumbled over there. It's it's kind of cool. Their their vibe is like different, like dive bar-y, but like 70s dive bar-y kind of. I don't know how to describe it, but it's, it's very fun. And being in there for the first time and inebriated was great. And he is at the bar over an entire pizza of which 75% of it is gone. And he has a beer and a shot and both are half empty, not all the way empty, just half empty and he like he's just having the time of his life he's got the i think it's the most i've ever seen him smile uh was it with this pizza at this bar over uh <laughs> over in downtown columbus it was i, ho- I hope he's okay with me telling that story it's, it was a good, it's been a good memory i also had at the time i had wildly blue hair for some reason i dyed my hair blue i think it was like the world's coming to an end so fuck it send it i remember him going uh there's the Geico commercials where it's like uh, kids becoming their parents and the Geico official is like trying to coach them through not becoming the parents. And they're in the, uh, they're in the grocery store and somebody has like really like blue hair and the parents are like, or the Geico insurance person's like, we all see it. We all know it. And just all night from then up from like at one, a certain point, Wes is like blue, your hair's blue, blue. And for the longest time, that's all. That's all he would do. Blue. Yes, Wes. We all see it. His hair is blue. Best Matt Larkin story. Mm, he's an eclectic guy. I, I miss him. I hope. I hope he finds his way back to Columbus. But uh, it was organized by Matt, and I we're very kind of like we we're kind of very like open to going to to new stuff and doing new things. And we were. I think we got word that the the gay bar daddies was across the street from where he lived over on Parsons and it's shut down now, but we got word that they, I think 
I think the story is that we got word that they were shutting down and wanted to go like support because that kind of like sucks. Like they they were kind of at least from what I what he told me or what I gathered, it was kind of like an institution. So we went over there and took almost the entire at the time the entire Chapman's crew, and it was like an all out just like a good time of like dancing, but it really encapsulated who he to me who he was. Like I don't know him and Lizard always trying to find fun new stuff. I, I definitely had trouble keeping up with them. I mean, it's obviously why they, they moved to New York. They're just like, they're cool, fun people. Yeah, I just remember getting towed along by him and like, you know, trying to keep up with Matt because he's like always going. Yeah, that was uh, shutting down and trying to like support like a last gay bar institution and not the last, but like an institution of a LGBTQ bar in, in Columbus was like definitely important to them. Uh, even though it's not their lifestyle, I think it's so important that we support that. Like it made me, made my heart, heart warm. It's a really wholesome like situation that a, he like, I wouldn't peg him for doing that and be like, that's kind of like, that's who he is. He just wants to support. Yeah. I think it's the most, uh, probably one of the most wholesome stories I have from Columbus is just him wanting, having that idea about him that he's like a supportive, wholesome person that just kind of wants to like lift everybody up and ended up bringing the entire Chapman's crew to a gay bar great you were gonna do a spanish tasting menu maybe like february or so but it wound up getting wiped out due to covid any plans with following through on that eventually oh i think eventually no no current no current plans we've had some like toss around ideas of uh other creative dinners in that realm you know like like matt obviously got to do his dinner and uh nico did his which were really cool concepts i was like honestly i'm very okay just like letting people go and trying to support and help people in that way. I think that was really cool. Speaks volumes to like kind of BJ's ethos behind Chapman's and having it as a inclusive place for people to express themselves on a culinary basis. I have dabbled in the Spanish one. I really wanted to do that and push like the, because part of the Spanish lexicon is very based on like, I don't know, like El Bulli and modern molecular was something I like dabbled in. It's kind of kind of passe at this point, you know, it's kind of, not cool anymore but in the sense that like if i did like i i know all like the retro techniques because jose was a part of elbow lee back in the day and we pulled a lot of their ideas like folded them into minibar and used those concepts and essentially brought molecular in part to the us and i think that was really cool are the have techniques progressed since then absolutely but i think like Part of that Spanish menu was built around like the juxtaposition of traditional Spanish and what that is. And then like molecular modern, because I feel like I have like a very good grasp on how both operate being a part of like the Haleo group. I don't know. That was really a fun concept that I wanted to like mess around with. Obviously we were going to do the dinner for it and that's what it encapsulated, but the plans to do in the future are definitely, hopefully to run it back. I know BJ wants to see me do it, but no plans yet. Definitely we're thinking, I mean, things are, things are tough lately with staffing and everything and new variants of COVID and all that stuff. So we're having trouble doing, I had another dinner that I was planning with, another guest chef dinner that I was trying to plan with uh, Katie Rendazzo that uh, was around ice cream on every course. So we were going to do like an ice cream social. We don't have a set date for it, but we have a menu for it. I don't know. Hopefully we get to pull that one off here soon, just stacking wise and the Rovers Wade dinner is definitely taking a lot of bandwidth right now. So we have that, but uh, I don't know, hopefully in the next six to eight months, we get to pull off 
if not the Spanish one, hopefully the uh, ice cream one, because that one's going to be nuts too. But everything is in the works. We haven't really solidified anything. It's just fun to talk about and fun to plan. But uh, execution is definitely what we need to uh, talk about in the future. That's what we have plans for. You've been a sous chef for a number of years now. Do you think you're ready to be an executive chef of a kitchen? Is that something you want to do or is it just kind of title and doesn't matter? Title isn't important to me. I hope that like, I think it's important to kind of like take the title out of it. I'm to me, I view myself just as a cook. Like, yeah, I'll introduce myself as the sous chef of Chapman's Eat Market for, for all intents and purposes. I, I cook food. I think it's important that we stick to that. I am definitely ready to do, to step into like a head chef role situation, especially after working with, I mean, great mentors like BJ and Wes and seeing how they, how they work because their level is the level they work on is definitely different than what I've been used to. I feel like I've learned a lot from them, especially with the kind of ethos that we're going for and trying to be, you know, not a, not a, <clears throat> not a yelling kitchen, trying to pay attention more to like emotionally how people are doing and, and just moving the kitchen along in a positive manner instead of just like beating people down with the verbal abuse that this uh, industry definitely has, I don't know, been a moniker for. I am really excited to hopefully step into that role here soon. It's the next level for me. Have I been kind of like apprehensive about it? And like, am I ready for this? I think everybody goes through that. I think it's important that uh, uh, up and coming to just really like understand the weight that that has. You know, you're tasked with not just day-to-day management, but like driving the kitchen, driving a business and driving a restaurant. You know, there are all these different aspects of being a head chef that, you don't necessarily get at the sous position in working so closely with Wes and BJ has definitely like fortified me and kind of uh, definitely made me feel a little bit more capable uh, in stepping into that role. Whereas before this, I wasn't quite there yet and chalk it up to hubris or self-positivity. Uh, like, do I feel ready for it? And I'm never going to feel ready for it. You just kind of at a certain point have to send it, but I definitely feel padded uh, and supported by BJ and Wes after working with them to like kind of get into that role. Cause I don't know. It's important to me. It's, it's daunting. It's, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's different for every, every chef that finds their way into this role is that like, suddenly you just have to do it. I feel like I've had time to reflect on it and prepare. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just don't want to mess it up <laughs> when the time comes. I don't want to mess it up. With the announcement of the coming restaurant in short North, are you going to be involved with that at all? Or are you staying at Chapman's? Um, I'll stay at Chapman's presumably to take over CDC head chef role. That's the game plan. But yeah, it's, uh, it's always going to be on that New York times list. There's no necessarily removing it. So kind of like maintaining and kind of pushing that, that accolade further is, uh, partially on my shoulders. And like, I hope I can, uh, hope I can support that. Yeah. Exciting. Did Kylo move with you to Columbus? Yeah, he did. He, uh, He's sitting in my Monstera right now, sleeping. He made the move against his will. <laughs> Meowed the whole time. Escaped from the escaped from the cat carrier and hit under the passenger seat of the U-Haul. Yeah, he made it in one piece though. Since you've been in Columbus, you know how has the food and restaurant industry changed? If you think it's changed at all since you've been here, and kind of what do you think needs to change, if anything, and and where do you see it headed? Oh man, so uh, contextually, I really only obviously only know the restaurant industry here since I moved here. But from what people tell me and kind of seeing the, I don't know, dinosaur offends anyone, but to me, like the 
Tamara Mitchell group is kind of like on the way out, which makes me a little bit happy because they seem to be very corporate driven. And like the independent restaurant scene here is what I've seen grow and have context. And that makes me happy that like, like the Chapman's group, what will be the Chapman's group is going to be like a mom and pop, like local supported restaurant group, whereas like something bigger that doesn't necessarily drive, not necessarily drive and support the community, but drive and support like the idea of raising Columbus up to a standard that's higher than has been is nice that they're, that's not the vibe of, they serve their purpose. You know, they kind of made, they've, they've, you know, raised, risen the temperature of the water to lukewarm and prepared it for like full send uh, boil for what everybody else is doing here. Because I feel like the most of the momentum is through independent right now. And that's nice. I think that's the future of the industry in general is more to fuel creative, creative minds of chefs and support like kind of local independence, uh, kind of like collapsing down into something that's a little bit more hyper-local and featuring local farmers and doing all, all the things that we should be doing and not necessarily expanding out to this like corporate, buying into a corporate culture. Again, it serves its purpose, but that's what gives me hope for Columbus is that it seems to be trending away from corporate and trending to like more independent, creatively driven people. Abishar is a big part of that. Uh, him getting on Top Chef is is big and seeing what he's going to do is definitely exciting. Yeah, I, I think that we're on the, we're at the cusp of, of something fun. And yeah, I just want to continue to push it forward because I think that's going to be fun. How do you define, I guess, corporate restaurant? Because everybody starts out as an independent restaurant and then usually they have to expand whether it's to help, you know, increase profitability or give people that work with the restaurant more opportunities, you know, to grow and everything. Is it five, six different restaurants within a restaurant group? And then you're like a corporate, is it having, you know, multiple states, multiple locations, different states? Like what is your definition of a corporate kind of restaurant? So to me, like corporate restaurant tends to be something where it's uh, devoid of creativity and culinary uh, prowess, just like something that is singular in concept, you know, like you have an Italian restaurant, that's all that you do. To me, that as soon as you start expanding and thinking about building a food group or a industry group around just different spots that have individual concepts, like that was the only way to make money in the restaurant industry. My cat's gone crazy. Once upon a time in like late 90s, early 2000s, that was just kind of, we didn't have this crazy social media expanse to discover all these new things and the way to expose yourself and expose people to new food and new ideas, new concepts was to focus on one cuisine and kind of move, move on and open different restaurant entities based on that. And to me, that structure of, okay, we're only going to focus on this type of food kind of lends itself into that corporate structure is that like, once you start thinking of yourself only as we're going to do this, it shuts yourself off to the rest of the world. It's a box to work in great starting off. But to me, it's kind of antiquated in the sense that like, we're shutting ourselves off from the world. And that's not necessarily like what I view. And that's a personal opinion as like, you know, something we should be doing. So like having a, a more broad concept food group, so to speak, and I'll put that one in air quotes, is that like, just trying to ex- build an empire to me is uh, for the sole purposes of 
one concept or another to me gets a little bit corporate. Anytime you start to stifle creativity definitely is uh, a red flag to me in the sense of corporate. Can Do we need to diversify to keep making money in this industry? Yes. And it's like unavoidable and it's definitely a line to kind of like toe. But for my two cents, like the moment you start kind of like boxing yourself into individual concepts and individual brick and mortars that are within this box of concepts that you open up around downtown, like our new concept is supposed to be kind of like centered around fire. And like, that's broad. I mean, that is one of the most common way of cooking. And to me, like we have to diversify our restaurant group, speaking to Chapman's to like, in order to make money and provide for our employees and to kind of like move the industry forward. What I think like zaps that and makes like groups like to me, like Cameron Mitchell, kind of like the blase pastimes corporate is that they seem to just be opening concepts to open. Like we don't need another Italian restaurant in German village. Like, you know, it, it just feels soulless. If you want to cut everything else and just put the short answer for me as being identifying corporate as soulless and uncreative, I feel like that's kind of what it all boils down to and what it all reduces to. Identifying the needs of your community is something I feel like corporate tends to shy away from and not excel at. I feel like talking to BJ West, Pam, all of our upper upper management and stuff that that's not the vibe that we go for. And like, I don't know, I, I think we're expanding quickly in hopes of like supporting the community and, and our employees and not necessarily feeding into that, like building an empire, a soulless empire uh, situation. What's next for you professionally? Do you think, you know, one day you'll ever want to open a restaurant of your own or with everything that you've seen kind of across the pandemic, running a restaurant is something definitely that you want to do, but maybe not opening your own one day? Oh man, 25 year old me after opening God knows how many restaurants would definitely not want to be, I want to open a restaurant. Like that's not what I was saving my money for. Nowadays, like after feeling a little bit more up to the challenge, so to speak, I would maybe way down the line, open uh, open something small and like use that as like my retirement gig. But, you know, for the next, like the five-year plan is to like, you know, help chat Cummins and like see what Columbus can do. I'm excited for that. And I really think there's something special here. And I, I hope to be a part of that in the next five, 10 years or so. Past that, I definitely want to retire as like a coffee shop owner or something like that. And then a nice little town, that'd be, that'd be ideal something low pressure where I still get to express myself creatively, but not necessarily have to feed the masses <laughs> would be nice. That's the sugar, sugar coated goal. We'll see if that pans out, but yeah, for the next, for the next uh, step, I think is the build up Columbus as a culinary powerhouse. Hopefully. Next question comes from previous guests on the podcast, Smalley Brandon Ford of the Hyde Park restaurant group. I use their corporate beverage director. If you could go back to your younger self, What's one thing you wish someone told you about the profession you're in now? Man, I think getting into this industry, everyone knows like a finite amount of time you can do this. What I wish I would have done, and I try to preach this to all the, all the cooks that I come across, is I wish I would have recorded my thoughts and recipes, creative process earlier. I'm sure, mo I'm sure a lot of younger chefs that are younger than I have done this, but like stressing the importance of like recording early recipes and a younger version of yourself as a, as a younger cook or, you know, a younger chef, like 
I wish I had done that. I just recently completely filled a notebook for that started the day Chapman's opened to maybe a week and a half ago. And it contains like all the recipes for the ice creams are in there. All the, like the recipe for the cow soy is in there, like, and everything in its infancy. And it, it's wonderful. Like, I don't know, snapshot of two years and like creative process and culinary development within this notebook. And I wish I had that as like a younger self and like opening bars to Vita or opening the new Haleos or like, you know, just my day-to-day processes of like other restaurants I've worked at to kind of like contextualize and look back on, not just for straight recipes. It's definitely important to record the recipes, but like, yeah, I wish I had done a little bit better documentation wise. I think that's like, if I could tell something to my younger self, it'd be document it all, record it all. Super important. And I wish I had, I wish I had that to look back on. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? What is the importance of being a craftsperson in the restaurant industry? And I think that can take like several different tracks into like fostering conversations. Like, are you an artist or a craftsperson? I think is the, is the question that I would like to pose to the next person. An artist to a certain degree is going to view a bit more of as like a one-off creative purpose in like individual dishes, wine choices, cocktail choices. Whereas a craftsperson to me is focused on creating a broader spectrum, culinary ideas and like a community. I think moving forward in this post-pandemic world, that's kind of important to focus on is that like, do you feel like you're going to drive the industry as a whole or focus on yourself and what's more important to you? Because there's not really a right or wrong answer there. Who you view yourself as. I think it's important going forward. Is that like, you can focus back in on yourself and drive your own ideas if that's important to you. And I think that's cool. And there's definitely something there to me, like major, like creative groups like Linnea or these high, like Michelin restaurants are driving themselves as an entity and not necessarily a craft. I view myself as a craftsperson and trying to craft food for people. And there's an importance there, but I think, uh, yeah, my, the question I would like to pose to the next person is, do you view yourself as an artist or a craftsperson? This next question comes from one of our listeners. What's one sporting event, concert, show that you haven't done or haven't been to yet, but you still want to do? Non-restaurant related event, I guess. I love YouTube and like it's like the window to the world to me. They're good follow. They're this company called Circle, C-E-R-C-L-E. Uh, I think they're French-based. They're this company that takes world-class musical artists and puts them in really obscure non-concert locations. They feature like FKJ on the Salt Flats in like Bolivia. They put Disclosure on a mountain overlooking this like uh, national park in Croatia. All kinds of very cool, very scenic spots for people to create and use the space. Uh, as a creative point, I would like to participate in one of those. Sometimes they invite people in and like have like a small show. I think that would be a really cool event to to catch up with. Definitely something music related. Uh, I love all the culinary arts and all the stuff that we do around here. But to me, a musical showcase would be my go-to. Yeah, Circle is very, very cool. Who is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far, would you say? Oh, thus far, man, I don't know. I like up until I really started to like solidify like my career, definitely trying to 
impress my parents and family and like legitimize my career choice was huge. Now I really kind of, I'm feeling a move to push to create for impressing, like impressing and cooking for moving forward, like and getting ideas. Oddly by my, not oddly, but like, honestly, for my significant other, uh, Stephanie, like, I just want to like cook for her and impress her and like, see if, you know, a creative realm or item stems from there and seeing how like I can make her happy and push my game forward that way, as well as in like the kitchen at Chapman's, you know, it's like, it's a nice dichotomy to have is that like, you know, cooking for the people you love is really to me, the, a love language that I have and an important way to express yourself. Knowing your, knowing your love language is definitely uh, an important part of uh, a healthy relationship. And uh, I'm getting a lot of inspiration from that right now. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? There's this company out of Ohio. I think they're out of Ohio, Ohio or Indiana. I can't remember. They're called Rada, R-A-D-A. And they make, um, actually my grandparents got me stuff from them first with no inclination of what it, it's like a, it's like a home cookery brand and they make like knives and crap, but they make all kinds of utensils. They're all like stainless steel. Um, and the quality is good. It's not meant for the kitchen, but they make like small, like small spatulas and small whisks and things that like you can keep on the line with you and don't take up a lot of space. Cause that's, that's, that to me is really important is like line management and station management is like, they make all these cool tools that are great for like flipping scallops or, you know, the little spatula that I have is maybe six inches. It looks ridiculous. I look ridiculous using it, but I don't care because it's like super utilitarian. It's like, it kind of ends up being like, it's not cheap, but it's very thin. So like you can scrape stuff with it. It's my favorite. It's like a little spatula that I got from my grandparents. They had no idea they were getting like the most useful kitchen item in my bane right now. Yeah. It's like, that spatula and the same company makes like a little like bar whisk. It's not a giant freaking long wire whisk. It's just like a little like it's a spiraled like metal around a loop with a handle. It's maybe all of 10 inches and again fits in my bane. If I need to whip something up real quick, it's there for me. It's maybe cost, I think it's like 12 bucks. It's ridiculous that they fit this like culinary realm of the industry when they're really meant for like home use. And like meant to be, it's probably, you know what it's probably meant for? It's probably meant for like charcuterie <laughs> and I'm using it for like <laughs> knocking out 175 guest nights and stuff. <laughs> like I bet they have no idea, but yeah, that's my most useful one. I would like, I would honestly, I'll, that's probably my Christmas gift to everyone is going to be like the little Rada, like spatula, it's like they're like 10 bucks and uh, super useful. I, it always goes missing because somebody's using it, which I, I, I don't, I don't care about. I, I tell people all the time they can turn the KS Media Studio, like what's mine is yours. And uh, I don't have any problem lending it out, but it ends up being like one of the most used, uh, used utensils. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So that isn't Chapman's essentially. We went to Rue the other night and had a really nice time at the bar. They're definitely like in the realm for me of like definitely cool new restaurants, like beautiful restaurant. Genevieve, the bartender there has, or the bar manager, bar director there has great skills. She's good. Uh, definitely recommend that one. Honestly, the if I had to go completely in the opposite direction, I know it's like colloquially known as low Beck, but the appropriate term, and I'd like to like correct everybody here, is Beck Tavern uh, in German Village as like a dive bar is definitely like uh, high on my list right now, uh, just as a place to go and grab a beer. Yeah, for me, like 
the, our, the most recent uh, restaurant that we checked out was ruined. It like really like hit all the marks to me. So that's my recommendation for everyone. Bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurant. So place you haven't been to that you still want to visit, place you haven't eaten at that one day you want to go and dine at. Bucket list, uh, which we'll get to cross off here soon, uh, Red Rocks. Slotted to go see uh, Mark Rebier, also a ridiculous ridiculous follow and awesome uh, artist musician we're gonna go check him out at red rocks in october that was high on my bucket list i'm gonna hopefully cross off another one and go uh travel around france and spain with some of my old rugby buddies who live over there for the like 2023 uh, rugby world cup uh so we're gonna meet up with people over there and go do that that's on my bucket list which i'll get to cross off here soon there's definitely some great restaurants in between there but i think the the one that I'd be most inclined to, at least nationally, one of our line cooks, Patrick, uh, Patrick Grill, uh, uh, turned me on to them is, uh, oh, what is it called? Grand, I think it's uh, Rustic Canyon. They're out of California, I believe. And they're just like the Instagram follow is the name. I think it's Andy Dubrava. Yeah, the CDC uh, originally founded by uh, Jeremy Fox, who's like wrote the book on like cooking vegetables, essentially. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Wild Instagram follow. And it looks like they're doing really incredible stuff out there. I'd love to go check them out, but they're, they're at the top of my list right now. But again, just talking with a, about food with, uh, with other people has brought that one on me. Everything else is kind of like, you know, pushing me through Instagram, but the quality ones are definitely ones that I get from other people. So yeah, definitely interested in going out there. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working. I think the, the easiest one for everybody is always when the, uh, <laughs> when the uh, Ansel system goes off, uh, should you be uh, unfortunate enough to be working in a scenario where the uh, Ansel system goes off? That's always crazy. I feel like it's the easy one, but uh, one of the craziest ones, it's like, it might like gross people out a little bit, but like, it is what it is. Like it's a part of the restaurant industry is like pest control is obviously like, he, like working in DC, just like New York city, the rats are everywhere. They find a way in. It's unavoidable. Restaurants are in general, very clean places. There is always going to be a situation where just like a pest finds its way in. And I was on a stage at a uh, restaurant that I'm undisclosed location, great restaurant, like great pedigree, are doing really cool stuff with food. But I was being walked around the restaurant for uh, to like just being shown storage rooms and you know where things were at, and, like getting acclimated to the place. Like everybody's super friendly, good environment, spotless kitchen beautiful kitchen and the sous chef who was this uh older uh hispanic gentleman who spoke just enough english and was on the older side was walking me around we got into this uh storage closet he's like okay all the dry goods are here and like he's like pointing stuff out and like he goes to kind of like point at like all like gesture to like oh here's all of our dry ingredients and as he like as he's pointing his hand lands like pointing at a giant rat and like there's this like pin drop silence is that like you know i'm following my my vision track is following his hand like looking at all of the dry ingredients that they have and it's like you know a fairly well clean kitchen i didn't expect it and uh he certainly didn't expect it is that like he presents his hand and it's this giant like rat just like sitting there on a uh on a bag of chickpeas and it it didn't move and i see it before the sous chef who's introducing me to the uh the, the space sees it and like my eyes get big 
he sees my eyes get big and like, like looks confused, looks over to where I'm looking at. And this rat is right next to his hand. And he lets out this, like, he doesn't like, he didn't like jump back or anything. He just gives out this little, like, <laughs> like little like squeak and the rat did the same thing didn't move didn't budge just went ah! and like they had this eye contact and then all panic ensued the rat fucking takes off he tries to snatch it with his hand knocks the chickpeas everywhere they explode all over this dry storage he's like hollering at the dishwashers in spanish to get a broom the fucking rat is like ping-ponging its way on the floor around the kitchen and like they're like setting up for service it was not in the middle of service it's like the beginning part of the day and like there's pots and pans being thrown at this thing because like you know it's kind of a nice kitchen like nobody's used to seeing or expecting this like giant rodent to be live animal to be running around the kitchen and like it absolutely threw the entire kitchen in utter chaos has to this day been one of the most like like insane like weird off the wall things that like crazy things happen all the time but like to go from like quiet like introductory phase like very professional to just complete and utter chaos and at the drop of a hat never seen it before in my life it was hilarious looking back on it uh would i wish it on anyone no but like honestly probably one of the funniest looking back on one of the funniest situations i've ever been in just like yeah movie theater movie style complete chaos food or drink guilty pleasures or anything candy fast food that you know is just terrible for you but you just can't help it oh christ almighty yeah i mean anybody who knows me big taco bell fan my guilty pleasure but yeah definitely taco bell through and through i have a huge sweet tooth i'm definitely more along like the gummy jelly bean candy side than anything else at uh Suraga, they occasionally uh haribo has if i can make a recommendation if you happen to come across the haribo fruit salad gummies uh they have they have like like i think apple pineapple passion fruit like kind of like slightly eccentric flavors but they all taste very very similar at least in the realm of like candy to what they actually are shaped like every time i like I'll, I'll snag a bag of those and introduce people to like the fruit salad bowl. Always a crowd pleaser. Always a crowd pleaser. Since you said Taco Bell, what is your go-to Taco Bell order? The go-to order up until obviously it's it's back in like pop culture now was the, the Mexican pizza. So like growing up all Mexican pizza and bean burrito, no onions, because the onions usually are inconsistent and destroy the uh, integrity of the burrito. I have, I have quite an opinion on it. I get a bean burrito, no onions. Uh, the Mexican pizza obviously was a great add back in from childhood. Um, the beefy five layer burrito, solid choice. Cause I like not crappy nacho cheese, probably add that one to the list. There was that, what I'm a little salty about is that grilled cheese burrito, uh, was really good where they like seared the cheese to the outside of the burrito was good, but was only a teaser for, uh, the grilled Monero replica burrito that, Wesley Grubbs did a, for a brief special at, uh, at Chapman's during the, uh, during the pandemic to go menu days. I think we had, a, I don't know, maybe we didn't do it. Most of the time. We just did it for family meal, but he made this awesome grilled uh, burrito that had the cheese seared around the outside of it. That was absolutely amazing that that grilled cheese burrito at Taco Bell was like kind of getting at, or maybe like stealing the technique from that was solid, but they don't have it anymore. And like, it's okay. 
a little salty, but yeah, those are my, those are my go-tos. Also, it's, it's cat time. They're, they're everywhere. Favorite Instagram account you follow? Uh, Richmond, Virginia seems to be pretty cool lately. The, what is it? Long Oven uh, restaurant in Richmond is a good follow and they're doing some neat stuff. Brenner Pass, I think she was chef's, uh, she was on, she was on Top Chef with uh, Avishar. Her Instagram's a good follow. Forger Chef is another one of my, my go-tos because I, I mean, I love hiking around and eating whatever I can find on the forest floor to my own demise or not. That one's a good one. A really good informationally based one and what to look for and what to find. Uh, that's Forger Chef. I think his name is Alan, Alan Burgo. Yeah, I think Alan Burgo. He has a good cook, uh, good uh, cookbook slash information, like foraging book out. I think it's called like Flora or Fauna or something like, I think it's Flora. Yeah, he's a good follow. That's uh, Forger Chef. Yeah, that's who I'm kind of like looking at right now. The Obviously all of the... Uh, Rustic Canyon guys have been at the top of my list and trying to do cool new things. But yeah, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely check those guys out. Favorite dish, favorite thing you ever kind of cooked, created. So kind of looking back through your career, this is kind of the thing you could point to that when you made it, you knew that you could be a professional chef one day, kind of reinforce that. I grew up coming to Ohio and occasionally picking apples and making apple crisp uh, with a kind of like a streusel topping and it's a pie, but it's not a pie. It's kind of like a casserole situation. Huge part of my childhood. And my dad baking that was like one of the few things that he would like really get into baking wise. He does not like raw apples, but likes cooked apples. And that was the only way he would eat apples. I remember the pizza job that we just bring it full circle. The pizza job that I first worked at, I made a sweet pizza dough and then baked the apples in the conveyor of, because there was no oven. I baked apples and sent them through and baked them in, a, in that pizza oven conveyor oven and then ran it back through with the streusel topping on it. Subsequently, got on the manager's radar uh, for terms of firing uh, because I was using, using company time to, uh, to make my own, like, my own things for the kitchen. And then uh, I did a, like, a melt-your-face pizza after that with like some spicy peppers that I had found at, uh, at the grocery store, uh, because like farmer's markets weren't a thing then, but I found habanero peppers and put them on a pizza and gave them to a guest that said the pizza wasn't spicy enough. Cause we did like a spicy pizza, but it was just like, you put like chili flake on it and that was it. And they said it wasn't spicy enough. So I was like, Hey, like I found these peppers. You want to try this? And I threw it through my pizza at like, I mean, I was like maybe 16 like here, here's your spicy pizza trying to be like an asshole. And like, I totally got almost fired for it. I think I did get fired for it. Technically, they didn't put me back on the schedule for some reason. And I think that was it. But I pushed my creative bounds a little bit too often at the, uh, as, as a young cook at a pizza place. But to me, like the, the, the thing that I make that I made that I knew this was kind of like what I wanted to get into was that apple crisp pizza that I sent through and people were like, this is delicious. Why did you do this? I'm like, I don't know. Like, and I had to like, <laughs> I guess this is what I want to do was the ultimate answer. But that was, it was really early on. And from then I always like chased, and I, I hope this is a part of like cooking culture in general, because it is for me is like the job is hard, but the fun part is watching people eat your food or make the food that you help produce and like seeing that smile light up on people's faces. I mean, that, that makes it all worth it. And I, I saw that early on in that apple crisp pizza that like people's eyes light up or they have the ratatouille moment, you know, and that, that makes it worth it. And I, I think that's where I, it's weird to look back that far 
and know that that's kind of the light that clicked in my head that like, I really want to get into this um, because the road path, like up until my professional career was so long after that, but it, it definitely put it in the back of my mind that I get a lot of serotonin from this and that's what I want to do. So hope that answers your question. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is. If you were, is there a moment, episode, scene stands out to you about him? If you weren't, is there anybody else who was on TV um, kind of doing some culinary stuff on TV? There was Emeril or Guy Fieri or somebody like that that you always kind of gravitated towards? Oh, man. I mean, I definitely, I was gifted uh, Kitchen Confidential really early on and related so hard to kind of Kitchen Confidential and not just like Parts Unknown and all his TV productions. You know, I, I had already read the book by the time I saw the um, saw the show, knew who Anthony Bourdain was. I think him encapsulating the, the, in the early chapters of him being a young chef, thinking that he could like cut it with like line dogs and where he's going, where he goes through that scene where, uh, one of the more seasoned line cooks at the restaurant is that it pulls the, uh, the sizzle pan out barehanded of the oven and like describes it as like ripping hot and like it's a band of pirates and like it's just complete and utter chaos and i had already very much experienced that at a restaurant that i worked at in virginia beach just felt like my experience was validated and like turns out it was a culture you know and like to me that was really a nice to see from somebody else's perspective who was a better writer and could express themselves better than I could. And like, takes me back to that moment in that kitchen that was just like hot hellhole, just nothing but old, like line dogs, just cranking out like 250 covers. And like, to me that like the fact that he was able to articulate that in writing and put it in a book and then it feeds its way down to me. I mean, I'm a, I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. And like, that was kind of what did it for me. was that chapter in Kinship Confidential. Is that like, somebody gets it. I feel seen, feel heard. Cause it is, it is every bit of a subculture uh, to break into and seeing, reading that was, was wonderful. It was definitely a wonderful experience of my career, I guess you could say. Where can people find you? Social media, website, restaurant reservations, plug everything. I need to change it, but my like handle is red racer X. It's so embarrassing, but like that's my handle. So when I get tagged on like chat and stuff or like ice creams and stuff, that's following me down, I guess. That's really the only place I'm super active. I'm not trying to be the next Instagram chef for sure. Uh, just want to create and do my thing. I will say like, you know, I'm in the restaurant five days a week. So like come by and see me and like uh, we'll uh, we'll talk food or whatnot. I feel like uh, we run a pretty uh, pretty efficient kitchen most of the time. So we get to talk to talk to people and guests or whatever when they come in and want to want to ask questions or whatever um yeah i'm i'm at chapman's you guys know where i work you guys are open uh tuesday through saturday now oh we uh we open on mondays now yeah monday through saturday weekdays are five to nine is the nine o'clock is the last last seating and then we push an hour later on uh friday saturday into 10 o'clock is the last seating so we're trying to like expand a little bit no place, no no places really in Columbus are open on Mondays, which kind of uh, to me uh, had the the appeal of doing Monday was not just opening for an extra day, but uh, it's an industry day. You know, we get a lot of industry people on uh, on Monday, so that's makes me feel good. And uh, a lot of industry people coming to see us on Monday, so that's definitely 
a movie uh, we like. Yeah, so. Mondays are usually a pretty light day in terms of, of restaurants for sure. Uh, I think even more so in Columbus. It's pretty hard to find a place that's open on Mondays. Yeah, that's what we came across. And like, yeah, just, I mean, it's all about running a business. But honestly, like the the feel good part of that is like other people get to come eat with us and like have an experience because most of them are closed. We want to be that spot for people. So, But uh, walk-ins at the bar and then uh, reservations open up on the first of every month. But check back on, on, you know, sometimes there are cancellations and stuff too. So just because you didn't get something on the first of the month for that month doesn't mean something doesn't pop up. So the insider vibe is usually if I'm, when I'm on, uh, when I'm on Expo, I can look out at the bar and see like, usually we don't take reservations at the bar, but it usually starts to like two, three seats clears up around like, you know, seven thirty, eight o'clock, even into like the, like on the weekends, sometimes you'll be able to find a spot like late night, like around nine o'clock, but like, yeah, definitely. Uh, the, the line out the door at the beginning is always fine. First come first serve. That's a, it's a way to live. But, uh, yeah, try your luck at five o'clock when we open. <laughs> this is awesome. You know, Chapman's is an awesome restaurant. It's definitely helped raise the profile of Columbus and the food scene here since you guys opened. And it's, it's awesome to see you guys have success and had a couple different people from the restaurant on, you know, and it was a matter of time before I was able to finally we try and keep it spaced out. Um, you don't want to have everybody back to back. So, but just the ice cream program and different creative, you know, flavors that you guys come out with that aspect too, and the different guest dinners you guys have done. So you guys do a little bit of everything and it's really cool to see. And it's always a good time when we're able to, to come in there. And, and now it's kind of just, uh, you know, when we're able to get a reservation, people think, oh man, you don't want people to know about this restaurant because then you'll never be able to get in. Right. And you have that like selfish thought, but, but the more you learn about the industry, it's like, no, it brings me more joy to see like, oh, I can't eat at Chapman's this month because everybody else has figured it out and it's like the book is full you guys are busy financially like that helps you guys and and that's awesome to see too so so you eventually get to that point and it's cool to see you guys you know have all that success and keep them going and it'll be cool to see you know when the time comes for you to put your stamp and your twist on the menu a little bit uh once everything comes to fruition with the other restaurant open in short north and everything stay in touch and you know we try and support everybody as much as we can um, too as well. So you ever need anything from us, reach out, let us know. But otherwise, uh, we'll be seeing you soon, making some reservations with Chapman and, and stopping in. Yeah. Don't be a stranger, man. Big thanks again to Justin for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his Sunday to jump on and chat about his career and coming to Columbus and working in DC and his different experiences and everything. And you know how it's been for Columbus so far for him since moving here and being part of the opening team for Chapman's and, and being there since they opened. So it's an awesome restaurant. If you haven't been, um, they usually open reservations on the first of the month uh, for the following month, but you can check periodically. They're on Resi can check in there and see if somebody's canceled or dropped out too as well but pretty in-demand uh reservations for chapman's um you, like i said you can follow justin on instagram at red racer x you can follow the restaurant there at eat chapman's too as well but if you haven't been make sure to check it out if you have been make sure to you know go back they change over their some of the dishes uh depending on the seasonality of ingredients so they'll tinker with uh, different components and everything and and they were uh they've done a couple collaboration dinners so far this year and like I mentioned with uh, Justin, he had that Spanish dinner uh, in the works and hopefully they'll they'll wind up doing that um, since I got uh, put on the shelf just because COVID and everything like that. So 
more on the way from them. But uh, again, you know, follow us on Instagram too, as well at SpoonMob. All the other social medias, you can follow us there too, as well. But visit the website, SpoonMob.com. All the different guests that we've had on the podcast, uh, different pages for them, food photos, contact information, all that stuff you can find there. And write in questions, comments, feedback, either directly to us, SpoonMob at Yahoo.com or through the contact portal on the website. Appreciate those that have been uh, using both those avenues to reach out and contact us can message us on Instagram too as well if you want. That's another avenue. But uh, appreciate everybody listening. Like I said, you know, we took a little time off there. We're back. So I'm recording more episodes, editing episodes that we've already recorded. We just had some other obligations with moving and everything like that come up uh, that we had to kind of get some stuff situated and settled. So we had to take a little bit of an impromptu break there. But we're in a pretty good spot now. We got a lot of stuff taken care of. There's always uh, different challenges with moving and getting stuff set up and organized and construction and anything like that. So been a little bit of uh, chaotic last few months, but uh, things seem to be kind of settling down now. So we'll be uh, just recording episodes and reaching out to people that we find super interesting or super talented and trying to have a conversation with them and uh, putting it out there for everybody to hear and kind of hopefully either get inspired or informed or get some sort of enjoyment out of it, whatever, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of the overall aim. So if you've been here for a while, appreciate, uh, continued support. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. I appreciate you being here and listening and we look forward uh, to more great episodes for you guys to listen to. And, uh, until next week, uh, we'll talk to you guys then.